Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In our last episode, Steve Rink traced the state of the Dade Battlefield from the 1836 recovery mission to the site becoming a historic Florida State Park 100 years ago this month, September 1921, and then up to the present. In this episode, Gene McNary, a longtime educator about the Seminole Wars, brings us into the park itself in the last 50 years. Gene wrote about the Dade Battle for graduate school in 1969. After moving to Florida to teach, she married. She and her husband, a state park ranger, lived at the park in the late 1970s. In 1988, she marched with Jerry Morris on the Lammers Legion trek from Tampa to the battlefield. She later invited Jerry to speak about soldier rations to her high school students. Jean has remained a key supporter for the Dade Battlefield Society, serving multiple terms as its president in the 2000s. Retired now, Jean remains involved in the annual Dade Battlefield reenactment each January and with park events throughout the year. She shares her insights with her on all of this in this episode. Jean McNary, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. It's good to be here today. What was your first encounter with the Dade Battlefield? I don't know if you call it an encounter. My grandparents lived in Rich Manor and moved there in about 1964. And as a family, we used to come down at like Christmas break or spring break. So we were on our way home from Christmas break, I think, in 1968. And I saw the sign, Dade Battlefield, So uh, as we were going up 301 to get back on the interstate. So at that point, I thought, I wonder what that's about. So I started looking it up and seeing what I could find out about it. And I decided to use the subject of what happened at Dade Battlefield as my uh, history paper I wrote for my historiography class in grad school. I remember the instructor, Dr. David Reed, said, I never heard of it. Can you find enough information to write a paper on it? And I said, yes, I think so. And I did. So that's where I first learned about what happened at the Dade Battlefield. Then I wrote a paper on it. It was turned in in February 1969. And then the really interesting thing was I ended up living on that battlefield in 78. Jean, how did you come to live on the Dade Battlefield? What? (laughs) I'll try to make it a short story. I uh, had moved to Fort Lauderdale and I taught school there. I took my class to Hugh Taylor Birch, which is a beach park, where I met a park ranger. And after I met him, about eight months later, we got married. And so I had to quit my job and we started moving up the state to Jonathan Dickinson State Park, where he'd get some camping experience. Then he got transferred to uh, Hillsborough River State Park, where he was the assistant park manager there. And then he came ill in 1978, and they promoted him and moved him to a park with a lot of less stress because camping parks are 24 hours. have problems developed there, and that's when they moved us to Day Battlefield. And we lived there about a year, and he passed away. In In regard to the Dade Battlefield, what is a God Wink, and how are you one of the recipients of it? The God Wink is is what I consider my life at Dade Battlefield and how I got there, mainly because uh, it was a term that came from, uh, a gentleman wrote a book on it, I understand, they wrote a book, but there was a Hallmark Channel about a God Wink, and a God Wink was brought up every time there was some type of coincidence 
that looked like it was leading somebody somewhere to something they don't expect, like a coincidence. And then it goes from there. And uh, the Baptist preacher at my church says he doesn't believe in any such thing but a uh, coincidence. The God is in charge of what goes on. And so that's what that movie was about. And so what are the chances? Come on, Patrick. And I'd be in grad school in Akron, Ohio in 1969 and write a paper about a place that I drove by with my parents in 68 and then ended up living there 10 years later. That's a God way. Previously, you'd written about the park, but you hadn't actually lived there. I was not in the park in 1669. I just saw the sign. I lived there. We had visited there when we were at Hillsborough River because one of the first things we like to do if we went to a new park, we'd spend his days off and look at the surrounding parks. Before we moved, we were Jonathan Dickinson in Martin County, and he got his promotion to Hillsborough River State Park. And the first thing that I said was, where's that? Because if you live in South Florida, you really don't know where too much is north of West Palm Beach. So we across the street. <laughs> right. And we trekked across the and yeah, this unknown area, I've never been, I had never really, well, I had been to because my grandparents lived in Ridge Manor, but then we visited when we were at Hillsborough River, and then we ended up moving there in the summer of 1978. Jean, in your memory, how has the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park changed? Um, one of the big differences was there was a, a ball field, like a regular baseball field, next to the park manager's house. And there were also, between the ball field and the lodge, there were tennis courts. And the other thing, major, major thing, was the road in front of the visitor center was a through street. It went from where the entrance of the park over to the road that runs along the south side of the park, County Road. I think it's 650. And people use it as a shortcut to go into Bushnell. The nine or ten houses that were to the south of us would drive through. That must have wreaked havoc on trying to collect admission fees for the park, no? Well, they didn't have park fees. Not not even anything on the honor system. Didn't have it. How different was the state of the actual battlefield back then? They mowed the battlefield. My husband had been told and instructed to let it grow up and get it to try to look like it did at the time of the battle. It upset a lot of local people that, oh, here you've got this men died here and you're not keeping it up and it doesn't look pretty in mode. And it's returned to that now. I mean, it's returned to the non-mowing. And I'm sure the present park manager probably gets some hassle over that. But the state is very, very much into trying to recreate and, and show people history as it was at the time that an event would happen. So if you were to walk along a mowed battlefield, you would think they would see Indians because they wouldn't be able to hide anywhere. But in essence, it was more of a pine flatwoods area at the time, and they hid behind the saw palmettos, and even though they're brightly dressed and colorful, they were hidden, and the attack was a surprise attack. The tennis courts didn't come out about the time that people were getting stressed. I think it was shortly before we got there. They ended up building their own uh, recreation center there in Bushnell that had, I think it was a tennis court and, and maybe some ball fields at Kenny Dixon Park to the north. I'm not sure if that was there when we were there or not, but it was added. So you have to balance that difference between competing interests, one for the historic nature of the park and one for the recreation. We have to give credit where credit's due. We wouldn't have that park if it weren't for the local people to start with. They managed 
to save it and keep anybody from doing anything with it. They then got the property, and but they, they didn't really do anything with it until the 1950s when they built the visitor center there and tried to make it more open for people to come in and some picnic and things like that. The visitor center dates to the late 50s, and people used it. They didn't have anything there. They didn't have Kenny Dixon Park. And, they didn't have any other type of recreational thing. So they, that was their park. That's the way they saw it. And with a big brouhaha was when they shut off the road. Oh, cool. That was pretty big. We were there then. Nay Landrum, who's the director of parks in Tallahassee, came down and looked over the park. And I believe they had a meeting on that. It was not a fun time. It was something that they were trying to, re- again, return it to the way it, as good as they could, is the way it looked in 1835. And for people to remember what happened there. What did they do to the breastwork? Oh, the breastwork. They changed that, Patrick. Somebody at one point had made a concrete breastwork. And the state took that out and turned the direction of it around. The way it's open today is the way it was during the battle. The way they had it, it was closed at one end. Tell us about the statue they put in that turned out to be a Civil War, not a Seminole War soldier. They also had... Civil War soldier statue in front of the visitor center. It actually was a Union Civil War soldier, but I don't think they knew that. Money was raised to put it there, okay? We didn't know. We had a little brochure. We had a gentleman come in one day. I'll never forget. He came in one day, and he lived down in uh, Bartow, and he was like an amateur military uniform historian. So he came to the park one day, and he visited, and then he went and talked to my husband and said, I want to recreate the Dave Massacre, because that's what they called it then. That was the book that was written, frankly. I want to recreate, reenact it, is how he put it. And my husband said, yeah, right, okay. So so he said, let's talk about this. And he showed my husband the most unusual hat that we'd never seen. It's really weird, which is the hat that the soldiers used in the reenactment. That tall hat with the curved top on it. It was only used by the United States Army for, I think it was less than 10 years. And the soldiers wore it at days. They wore that particular hat. And he pointed out how the uniform on the statue was wrong, and the uniform depicted on our brochure was wrong. At that point, Dal got uh, Jerry, his name was Jerry Dean, got him in touch with Frank Walmer. And Frank Walmer got a hold of a gentleman named Ray Jerome, who was in charge of the reenactment at Olusty Civil War. Plus, they had just building the fort Foster at... River State Park, which is the second Seminole Indian War Fort that was built in the 1830s and then burned down and then built again. It was part of the plan to establish a fort every so many miles for the protection of the soldiers. And that's, they did the one there at, at Hillsborough River, which I fortunately, this was pretty cool. I got to dig with the archaeologist on it one day, along with my husband. He would spend his days over there going over there with the archaeologists and digging on the fort. Uh, there's some bodies there. That's a fact. I know they're there because I saw one of them. They're still there. They would have been killed or they could have died as illness maybe because that was the time when, you know, people were out on the frontier and they could come down sick with something. We've got no doctors and they're like you know, 25 miles from Tampa. Fort Brooke. There is a, a little book that was published on that too. And Henry Baker was the archaeologist and he, he stayed another week, I think, to look at the bodies more closely. They were an interesting group. The archaeologists were down here to just find the walls of the fort, just establish exactly where everything was. And then that was like in about 1976. And then they started building it in the end of 1978, beginning of 79, because we went down there one day while it was under construction. The fort. Tell us about your relationship with Frank and Dale Lommer 
and what that led to as far as commemoration for the Dade battle. Now, we got to be friends with Frank and Dale the year we were there. They'd have a commemorative ceremony, and Frank did that the very first year, where he spoke as Ransom Clark in front of a group of people. They found one of uh, Ransom Clark's great-great-nieces who lived over in uh, Lake Salapapka, was it Salapapka, over in Inverness. And she came one time. And different times, they managed to find different descendants of Ransom Clark that attended. And so they did that for a few years. They had that little, and I would go up for that and take pictures and all that. And then they had a, what they call a skirmish, was the first attempt at trying to begin a reenactment. They did it on a Saturday. Then they were trying to pull reenactors in that we had to use Civil War reenactors because there wasn't any for the Second Semillion War. It was a totally different type of drill that they had to learn. The guys at Fort Foster and Jerry Dean worked with the guys at Fort Foster to teach them the military drill that those soldiers would have used and how the dress was different. They could wear the same pants, basically the same color pants, but they had to have different jackets and hats to do the reenactment. To be a reenactor is not cheap. And even after your husband's premature death, you still did come to the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park for its various events, including the annual battle reenactment. I would go up every year when they had something going on, like the skirmish or the ceremony with Frank that evolved into the first reenactment. I was up there every year, and then I would volunteer. I probably joined the society, too, because in, I believe it was 1993, I became a board member. Frank called a bunch of us and said everything had just downhill. They had a disagreement, I understand, over money that had been raised as to what to spend it on, because the society wanted to spend it on getting the cannon, putting the money towards getting the cannon. That was the goal uh, in order to use the cannon during the reenactment. And I understand that the park wanted to spend money on a tractor or something, and they, they didn't care for that particular park manager. So this is, again, what I was trying to call me up to. He said, Gene, we need a board, and will you be on the board? I said, well, okay. So I did that along with Jerry Morris and a few other people. I usually volunteered in the uh, visitor center because I knew if it was raining, I'd be dry, or if it was cold, I'd be warm. <laughs> so, and that was my job, to be up there and answer the phones and help people out and stuff like that. How important is the CSO to the park? It's very important. We were one of the first CSOs in the state of Florida and one of the most active ones. And anybody who's got a reenactment, like people down in Loxahatchee, they will come and study what we do because we've been doing it for so long. It's important that the board and the park management in the state, we're there to support them and work together. We've done pretty well with that. You're dealing in a small town, Patrick, and we lost a lot of local support when that happened. And in a small town, like the, the day that we moved to the battlefield back in 1978, I went to the local grocery store and they knew who I was. The day we moved, oh, no. Oh, you must be the new ranger's wife out at the park. I said, yeah. And I asked him if he'd take a check and he said, sure. And I said, but don't you want all this ID and all that? No, he said, I know where you live. You think? Why is the CSO needed? They never fund parts like they should. It never has. And even cut back in the whole funding we had for the Carl Lands. They get their extra funding from Doc's stamp, but the state of Florida goes in and robs that to pay for other things. Yeah, the first thing is going to be shut down. It was shut down a number of years ago when the state was cutting back on their budgets. In fact, they almost even wanted to close Dave Battlefield and talked about that. That always happens. What's going to happen? Look, look at the national government now. If, if we have a government shutdown, you know what's going to get shut down first? National Park. Trust me, it always happens, though. 
they, they said, well, they're not essential. It's not a life and death thing, blah, 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 blah. And they're right. It's not a life and death thing like you want the highway patrol out, you know, or, uh, but it is necessary for the quality of life for the people who live in Florida. So the locals love Dade Park, but didn't always like management decisions. There have been bad feelings for a very, very long time. That was unfortunate. And everybody that was at the park was like an outsider. It really helped when we had one park manager from Georgia with her, her, her thick southern accent. <laughs> She'd go eat at the local restaurants and think they accepted her pretty well. <laughs> uh, yeah, these people came down to talk to the local people what they wanted to do in the park. They literally, according to the article, had to escort them out of town for their own safety. Jean, separate topic. In 1988, Frank Laumer grabbed a bunch of you to redo the Dade March from Tampa to Bushnell. What was your participation in that trek? Oh, <laughs> I got invited to go on the march to recreate the original part of Major Dade. I'll never forget the one newspaper columnist that went with us from the St. Pete Times. I know why Major Dade and his men died at that battlefield. I said, well, why, Jan? And he said... Because by the time they got there, they wanted to die. <laughs> oh, my God, I understood it, too. Oh, gosh. To this day, if I look at a barbed wire fence and think, do I go under it, through it, or try to crawl um, or over it? On the first day, we walked 17 miles. Well, I've never done that in my life. And I thought I was in pretty good shape just doing a couple miles, you know, just walking a few miles every day. Oh, no, no. I didn't take into account that as you walk into a pasture, you got to lift your legs up over tufts of grass, and then your hips are going to hurt. And then hard to get your leg up to go over a barbed wire fence and climb. Uh, and that night, just kind of skipping a question on, on the walk, some of the soldiers were really suffering, really suffering, because they wore their uniform, and it was hot. Temperatures in the 80s. And they sweat in those uniforms. And I think it was Steve Abel, who actually, he's done reenacting in films and is an actor. And his inner thighs were just rubbed red raw from the sweat and the legs rubbing and stuff. I was comfy wearing sweatpants and a loose t-shirt. I didn't have to deal with what they did. Wearing wool and sweating. See, one of my favorite people was the colonel. I can't remember his last name. Found out later that he lied about his, his age. He's actually in his 70s. He was an Air Force, retired Air Force colonel. And he wanted to do the march. And anytime we'd take a break for lunch or somewhere and we'd sit down, I said, well, Colonel, aren't you going to sit down and eat your lunch? He goes, nope. I said, well, why not? He says, because if I sit down, I won't be able to get up. I'm 74 now, and I'm thinking, oh, now I understand what he's talking about. <laughs> so he just stayed up. He leaned against the tree. He was a really nice man. And the other thing was, this, this guy is, he's an old guy. I don't know if he's going to do this march. Now he did, he do it. He was out in front of everybody every day. And right with him was this uh, chunky, tall, judge from Newport Ritchie, who ended up being an appeals court judge. I think he's still on the appeals court down in Lakeland. Craig Malati, he did the first three days. Well, he and the colonel were out front. I'm thinking, how is that judge doing this? Well, it turned out he was a member of the Florida Trail Association. That's how he did it. And he worked with the boys. Interesting, interesting people. The night we camped in Ridge Manor, some of the soldiers got together and they sang for us. And one of them played, quote, the spoon. I won't forget that. And it was the coolest thing about it, Patrick, was you're sitting there and you've got the hills around you. Nobody from 301 or 50 can see you because you're down in the middle of the hills in this big pasture area. We're playing this music that dated to the 1830s, maybe earlier. And I'm thinking, it made you feel like you were on that walk at that time with the fire burning and people sitting around. I understand you had an interesting experience at the so-called Dade's Breakfast Pond. 
Indians attacked us while we were at breakfast pond. I mean, they came down and harassed us, including the Swamp Owl. Swamp Owl loves to do stuff like that. If you've ever met Mr. Morris, Swamp Owl. And then you're sitting around this fire, you start hearing these, like, you know, and, the, and you thought, oh, I don't think there's a bird. And we had these cute attorneys. I forget where they were from, but they were funny because one of them had this little thing you put on your head and acted like you'd been shot in the head. So he'd sit there with that on with this arrow through his <laughs> And they were just joking around. And then we heard the Indians, and then it wasn't such a joke anymore. We had a good time, and we hurt. I mean, I found out what moles do in that walk. I didn't know what it was. And one of the reenactors said, Gene, get some mole skin and put it on the blah, 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 blah. I said, okay. And that was another thing with Jan and when we were on the ranch the first day and we're looking and we had to, there was a, a huge puddle in front of us. We had two choices, climb a fence, walk on the other side of the pasture, then recline the fence back or walk through the puddle. Yeah, because well, you're not supposed to get your feet wet when, you, uh, when you're when you know, on a march like that. They tell you not to. But, but I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, I'm walking through the puddle because I am too. So we did. We were pretty close to the fort. And the interesting thing was, before we could be seen at the fort, Ray Jerome, who's in charge of the march, had us all line up and get in a, you know, like a long line. The marching cadence was tapped out by drummer James Permain. Tell us about how his drumming put you all into strict formation. He's been in the battle reenactment, and he was playing the drum. Everybody strained up like they hadn't been on the trail for more than a mile, and we'd just finished 17 miles, and we were dying. We all marched into the fort, met by Channel 13 and Channel 10. And then, boy, that, that night, I slept upstairs in the blockhouse. A bunch of us did, on a hard wooden floor. And I thought, oh, my God. Yeah, I fell asleep. But there were nails that kind of went through, so you had to avoid the nails. You marched with frequent podcast episode guest Jerry Morris. Oh, yeah. Jerry was on the march with his son for a while. I, his son uh, didn't stay on it. His son dropped off because anybody younger, it was hard. Let me tell you, it was hard. Well, the cool thing I got to do was I actually got to take a shower the second night because they camped in Dade City at the high school. And I live yeah, half a mile north of the high school. So I went home. <laughs> I got a shower and went to bed there. And, and then they left from there and, and went up and tried to follow the Fort King Road as well as you could follow it. Ray and Frank often would stop and look at the map and try to figure out which way kept us on the Fort King Road as much as possible. And what people don't realize when they're at the battlefield, and you've probably heard this before, that little marking where the Fort King Road is, is where the Fort King Road was. That is the Fort King Road through the park. So that was always kind of cool, I thought. There were about five or six people that made every step the whole way. And I was not one of them because the second day, leg wasn't. I was literally kind of dragging my left knee because it hurt. And the tops of my feet hurt from going down the hill at Harney Road. We had to go down that sharp hill to 301, cross 301, go up the other side. And because there's muscles across the top of your, your foot that you don't know that you have. That part of my, ugh, that was sore too. But I, so I didn't walk. I wanted to walk the first two miles, even dragging my leg, but I didn't want to slow any other anybody else down. So I walked the first two miles to finish going through the park. Then they went to the north side, and we're going to cross over to go Chansey Road and up, oh, what's the road, a coach road or something. I rode with a support vehicle most of that day. And the next day, I didn't start out with them, but I joined them and finished going into. I'll never forget the day somebody said, well, how far are we walking tomorrow? And they said, well, it's eight miles. And somebody said, oh, it's only eight miles. He said, yeah, only eight. We did 17. We were told the first day it was going to be like, I think, 12 or 15 or something. And then it was 17 miles. 
My body still aches when I think about that. Yeah, I walked the whole distance from Ridge Manor to Breakfast Pond and from Breakfast Pond in. So I did walk part the fourth day, part of the third day, part of the second. Gene, what are some takeaways from the march to the date battlefield? Well, for one thing, I gave you an example. We're sitting around the fire, and you just get the feel of what they went through. And like Dan said, they went and died because they hurt so bad by the time they got there. They had to be in a lot of better shape than we were, really, when you think about it. Because they're in soldiers in the march. As far as the walking thing, and it wasn't a road. It was more of an Indian trail then. It's strenuous to do. Most of us had never done anything like that. And the fact that I did a lot of it and still remember it, and I start to hurt when I think about it, <laughs> it was worth it to, to me. I love places that have living history where they try to recreate what life is like at that time, and they keep themselves in a role like they do at places like Cates Cove and places where the National Park is. And we got that from the National Park Service. State of Florida did as far as trying to do living history. And our battle is not exactly where the breastwork was originally built, but it occurs on the battlefield area and it is by the plants and everything back where the pine and flatwoods are there. That's what it would have looked like then. And, and I didn't know this till one of the reenactors was telling me they don't have reenactments on battlefields. It's very rare to have anything that's done on an original battlefield. They don't do it. I don't think the National Park Service allows it. Like Gettysburg is held at some kind of farm somewhere close to Gettysburg. I don't know about Saratoga. Gene, you cared so much about the park and the battlefield that you ran and were elected to be the president for the Dade Battlefield Society. Yeah, from 2003 to 2009, I was president of the Battlefield Society. Got more local people on the board. That's great. And everybody has to know, I think once they get on the board, they think, oh, my gosh, this is a lot of work. Steve made it a science. He had everything color-coded on his reenactment, uh, Excel sheets and things. And as long as you break down what you have to do and you've got good people in charge of different areas that help president out, uh, Jim Belton and I, Jim was the, the treasurer, and we applied for a grant, TDC grant. So I did the first application for that, and we got $8,000 that year. And then one year, we got like $18,000, which we used all for advertising, most all of it. I think we got away with using it for some of the programs and things like that. They tend to give it to us if we apply for it because we are definitely a tourist draw. And we had to prove that, and I had to go to the motels and try to find out how many people were there just for the reenactment and get statistics and end up the report. That was a lot of work. I don't miss that part. <laughs> but originally, when we did it, this is kind of interesting because you had a county commission that's never done it before. You had the Battlefield Society that applied. We've never done it before. We had spent a lot of money up until the day before the battle, and we didn't have much left. And we went down there. They gave us a check that day for $8,000 which helped us proceed with the battle because we'd spent the funding leading up to that. Of course, they don't do that now. You know, you got to go through a lot more paperwork on the grant, and you don't get your check till way after the fact. So, but that first day, we walked in, the guy in finance said, sure, I'll, I'll cut your check right now. I looked at, I looked at Jimmy, he looked at me, and said, okay. <laughs> so. Gene, I understand part of why you did the march was so you could experience it and help you as a teacher in bringing the Seminole Wars to life in your classroom. How did you go about that in the classroom? Well, I taught Florida history. I got it added to the curriculum in the 1980s, although it was approved by the state of Florida. And I had to argue with the district supervisor in Land O'Lakes. They get Florida history in fourth grade, Gene. I said, 
the gym. A lot of people come to Florida way after they're nine years old and they not move down here till they're in high school. My kids need to know about this. And if I can get them interested, we offered as a ninth grade elective, but it was open to everybody nine through 12. If I get kids interested in history by what's around them and talking about that, then maybe they'll do better in world history. And, you know, if they just to get to where they like the subject, then that's going to improve their interest in history to start with. So they allowed me to do that. I wrote some lessons. Now, if, if it's in the eighth grade curriculum is a thing. And I didn't even know it when I was teaching eighth grade American history. I didn't even know it in their curriculum. And I went to the social studies conference and we published these books and I showed it to everybody. And this one girl said, I said oh, did you think you get to keep those books? And she looked at me with this look of horror. And I said, yes, you do. Compliments of Pasco County. What part did you play in producing the 12-minute video about the Dade Battle that you can see inside the Visitor Center at the park? I didn't work in the script on that. Nell, the president then, I can't remember, it's Nell Christ, I think was her name, and her husband and daughter were in the society. She was the president. She got the, the bids and got the guy up in Tallahassee, not Tallahassee, Jacksonville to do this film. So when they were about finished with it, because I was a classroom teacher, they said, we want you to see this and tell us what you think, which I did tell them what I thought. Basically, I said, it's not going to work. What do you mean? I said, you can't just have people sitting there talking and then go to another person sitting there talking and go to another person sitting there talking and expect the kids to listen to it. You got to have something more interesting than that. And that's when they did that. He put in some graphics. I don't know if you've seen the whole thing, but it's much better than the original. And then I would show that to my class, and I would I would show them the longer one. I said, now wait, now wait, now wait. <laughs> I'd jump off, and there would be my name on the credit. I said, you guys have to see this. They go, ah, yeah, whatever. But uh, And I've had kids tell me later, like, I took them on some archaeological digs all up here in Sumter County. We got involved with Terrence White. We did one. I took one girl over to a, a dig in Brooksville on the Hope Farm, which is a different period. But I would take kids on things like that, or I'd take them on a day. We'd go visit the different parks, and one of the girls got to throw an atlatl over at Crystal River. You know, brought him here to a day battlefield. One group I took out, he wasn't digging, but he needed kids to sort, sort out artifacts and label them. And I took a class up here and they did that. When you're a grad student, you get funding to make the trip to go do what you need to do, but you can't do all the digging by yourself, which is what we had the kids do. The kids were digging. <laughs> Something else you did was invite Jerry Morris to talk to the class. Yes, he came. We have it for about six years. I did a Florida Heritage Day at Sefer Hills High School. And Jerry came and talked to kids about cooking during that period of time and the soldiers, how the soldiers lived and what they cooked, and he showed them hardtack, and he kept their attention, let me tell you. And Jerry had the roughest kids in the high school. He had some of the group, like, alternative ed kids, and they were mesmerized, you know? I said, Jerry, do you realize you had the toughest kids in the school? And he goes, no, because they were very good for him, because he was different. He's something different. He's one of the soldiers. You also brought in some actual black Seminoles to discuss their heritage. I had Matt Griffin came with his uncle. Matt was 13. He talked to 150 high school students that sat on the floor while he was a little 13-year-old talking to them. Uh, and his uncle asked me, he said, well, your kids were so good. And he said, they paid attention. And I said, that's right, because if they had enough, I would have killed them. <laughs> they were my they were students from all different classes. Our teachers would, would sign up and bring their kids down, but we wouldn't let anybody misbehave or they'd be out of there in a second. But, uh, How did you specifically weave the Seminole Wars into your history curriculum? Well... 
Let me tell you what I did in my classroom when I got to Native Americans when I taught. Because of what I learned at Dade Battlefield and what happened there, I did a thematic unit called Westward Movement, What Happened to Native Americans. And one of the first things my students found out after I gave this one little questionnaire test to do was there was not one treaty that was honored by the American government with the Native Americans. We couldn't find any. Just look at Florida. Didn't happen. And then I got an example like Andrew Jackson, who came to Florida. That's one of the lessons I wrote. Oh, my God, they crucified me today. Because I had a lesson on how Andrew Jackson came into a foreign country, hanged two Indians and two British spies, actually, that's what they were doing, selling guns. He was a hero to the American public. But in essence, he broke the law all over the place, including the Constitution of the United States, even when he was president of the United States, when he forcibly moved the Indians. But nobody did anything about it because they appreciated that he got rid of those Indians and got them out of the way so they could settle. You see, my problem, if I were in the classroom today, I'd worry about, no, I wouldn't worry about it. I'd do it anyway. But somebody would, oh, you don't love our government because you're telling that these things happen. Well, yeah, they happen. And we don't want them to happen again. And we're better than that. Ugh. Gene, what's the continuing challenge that educators have in teaching about the Seminole Wars and for the Dade Battlefield Society being able to raise awareness about them? I just had a discussion with, with the park manager, Bill Gruber. I said, people drive down I-75 and they think, oh, Dave Battlefield. And, every, and they still, to this day, walk into that battlefield and think that's a Civil War battlefield. To this day, they think that. So our existence as a society and the park itself wants to educate people on what happened there, which turned out, and nobody seems to really know this because it's not in the textbook. I found one one reference in an American history textbook about Osceola and the Seminole War. It started the longest, costliest Indian war in American history. The longest, costliest Indian war in American history was fought here in Florida over a seven-year period. And people that live in Florida still don't know that. But they don't know Florida. I love Florida. And that's why I love teaching Florida history. And I've had students come back years later and say, oh, Ms. McNair, I love your Florida history class. Oh, at least if they bother to come there, then they find out it's about a whole part of history that they don't know because it's pretty much, there's only so much you can teach in American history. Right now in Florida, we're limited that year I retired. The year I retired, they were enforcing the curriculum in high school of starting after the and coming up to the present. Because after all, the American Revolution and Civil War is taught in eighth grade. Now, how well do you think those eighth graders remember that? No, no, they don't. And even in high school, after I go through it, the teenagers are different. They tend not to see anything beyond the end of their nose and realize how important anything is to them until years later. Or uh, one of my kids was traveling on a trip with his mother. His mother called me up and said, oh, I need to talk to you about Kevin's Florida history grade. I said, uh-oh, why? And she said, oh, no, it's a good thing. We're driving up I-75. And he kind of, he's a senior in high school now. She said, he sat up and said, Mom, Mom, there's Dave Battlefield. Mom, there's Mick and Nelson. Mom. And he told her about each of these places. And she said, I had no idea. So I got rid of the senior that didn't seem like he gave a hoot about anything. <laughs> it was kind of interesting what, what will sink in with them. And hopefully they'll teach their children that. And, and some of them come down. We have groups come down. And, and it would be wonderful if they did help us put on the reenactment. Gene McNary. Thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Okay. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. 
visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.